Before we begin this episode on Yorkshire, I would like to put aside a couple of minutes to pay tribute to Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, who died on the morning of Friday the 9th of April, two months short of his 100th birthday. Although I am myself well stricken in years, the Queen and Prince Philip have been part of the fabric of Britain all my life. It is hard to imagine the Duke of Edinburgh just not being there. Apparently, 22% of the British population either met him or saw him in the flesh, which just shows how hard he worked to be out there amongst us all. There are two occasions that stick in my memory, which to me encapsulate the remarkable qualities of a remarkable man. The first was during the Queen's Silver Jubilee in 1977. I was working as a park keeper in the South Bank Gardens near the Festival Hall in London, and the Queen and Prince Philip came to visit in order to rename the gardens the Jubilee Gardens. We were all lined up in our donkey jackets and gardening boots to be presented, and the Queen came down the line and then stopped in front of me, probably because I was the smallest and she could at least look me in the face. Petite and beautiful as a porcelain doll, she fixed me with sparkling blue eyes and a brief, dazzling smile. What do you do here? she asked, and I froze. To my eternal shame, overcome by the moment and the presence of majesty, I choked. My face reddened, my eyes bulged, and I emitted a gurgling sound like the dregs of an emptying bath. The queen even if she didn't actually roll her eyes, had every right to, moved on. I stood there, mortified and deflated. I had blown it. And just as I was about to hurl myself into the Thames, the Duke of Edinburgh, who was his customary two steps behind, leaned down and murmured, just loud enough for others to hear, Don't worry, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here either, and was gone. The derision of my colleagues turned to chuckles. My embarrassment subsided. And that is what he did so well. When people froze in the presence of the Queen, as many people do, he followed up to break the ice and put them at their ease. The second occasion was the Diamond Jubilee in 2012. I was on one of the boats at the back of the pageant on the Thames, doing my I-never-knew-that bit about interesting places along the river for the BBC. It was pouring with rain, the wind was howling, it was icy cold, and we were all wet and miserable, moaning and complaining and feeling very sorry for ourselves. And then, four hours after the Royal Barge, we passed under Tower Bridge, and there, on the north shore, standing ramrod straight next to the Queen, after four hours in the icy, driving rain, was the Duke of Edinburgh, 91 years old, resolute in doing his duty, immovable, until he had saluted every single last boat in the pageant. How feeble we whinging youngsters felt. Rest in peace, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. Welcome to another episode of Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, opening the door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise, as we travel around Britain and Ireland in search of entertaining stories and fascinating facts that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. 
never to bring you back. I'm Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about the countries and peoples of Britain and Ireland, and I will be your guide as we travel around the regions of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, meeting friends along the way and learning about the people and places that make these beautiful islands the most magical place on earth. In this episode, we visit Yorkshire, taking in the northern capital of the Roman Empire, the scene of the naval battle that secured American independence, the village where man first flew, and the setting for the world's first moving pictures. Yorkshire is so big, it has an acre for every letter in the Bible, and some to spare, that it has traditionally been divided into three, with each division, east, north and west, known as a riding or thriding, as in thrice or third. The west riding is the biggest county in England on its own, while the north riding is bigger than Norfolk, England's fourth largest county. Bureaucrats have more recently divided Yorkshire into north, south, east and west, but however you cut it, Yorkshire remains, for Yorkshire folk and others, God's own country. Stop 1. The Walls of York York, capital of Yorkshire, has the longest and most complete city walls of any city in England, and when you walk along those walls, Not only are you taking one of the loveliest walks in England, around one of England's most beautiful cities, you are walking along almost 2,000 years of history, for you are walking for much of the way on the foundations of Roman ramparts. The story of Roman York, or Eboricum, place of the yew trees, as the Romans called it, is a fascinating and romantic one. Four Roman emperors knew York, Two of them lived and died there, and two were proclaimed emperor there, including the first Christian emperor, Constantine the Great. And since the Roman Empire was governed from wherever the emperor happened to be, York was, on at least two occasions, the centre of government for the entire Roman Empire. Indeed, it was known as the Other Rome. Roman York was founded in AD 71 by the 9th Legion, who had been sent north by the governor of Britannia, Julius Agricola, to subdue the troublesome Brigantes, a Celtic tribe who occupied an area north of the Humber roughly equivalent to modern-day Yorkshire. The 9th Legion built themselves a wooden fortress on a strategic site between the rivers Ouse and Foss to serve as their military base and administrative centre. The site of the headquarters of the Roman fortress is now occupied by York Minster, Britain's largest medieval cathedral. The 9th Legion, consisting of some 5,000 men, was one of Rome's most famous legions. 
It had originally been created by Julius Caesar and had helped in the invasion of Britain under the Emperor Claudius in AD 43. The legion remained based in York for about 50 years before mysteriously vanishing from history. It is thought that it may have been wiped out by a British attack either on York or further north and that it was this outrage that had brought the Emperor Hadrian to York in AD 122 on his way to secure the reinforcement of the empire's northern border with the construction of the famous Hadrian's Wall. To help build the wall and to replace the missing 9th Legion as guardians of the north, Hadrian brought with him another celebrated legion, the 6th, known as Victrix or Victorious, for their part in saving Cleopatra during the siege of Alexandria in 47 BC. Now, once the construction of Hadrian's Wall was underway, Hadrian himself returned to York and got the 6th Legion to work on strengthening the defences of the fort. A ditch was dug around it and the earth extracted used to build a rampart on which was put a wooden stockade. It is this earthen rampart that forms the foundations for a good portion of the wall we can walk around today. The 6th Legion remained based in York until the Romans retreated from Britain at the beginning of the 5th century. They were there in AD 142 to welcome the governor of Britain, Lollius Urbicus, newly appointed by the Emperor Antoninus as he passed through York on his way to construct a new defensive wall, the Antonine Wall, a hundred miles north of Hadrian's Wall. And they were there in AD 208 to welcome the Emperor Severus, who came with his Praetorian Guard to have another go at the persistent Picts. Severus, along with his wife and sons Caracalla and Geta, and his court, settled in York and oversaw the construction of a massive stone defensive wall with towers at each corner, outside but parallel to Hadrian's earthen rampart. Within, they built a stone city worthy of an emperor. The section of this Roman wall and one of the four corner towers, known as the Maltangular Tower, can still be seen, standing in the museum gardens between the Minster and the River Ouse. For three years, Severus ruled the Roman Empire from York, until he died there in AD 211, at the age of 63, and his ashes were scattered within the mighty walls he had built. His son Geta was proclaimed co-emperor with his older brother Caracalla, and they returned to Rome, where Caracalla did away with Geta, and named York as the capital of the northern province of Britannia, granting it the status of a city or colonia. In AD 305, the Emperor Constantius Chlorus arrived in York, accompanied by his wife Helen and son Constantine, to once more attempt to push the Picts back beyond the Antonine Wall. But the campaign petered out when Chlorus died in York the following year in AD 306, and was buried somewhere within the city walls. The 6th Legion proclaimed Constantine as Emperor, 
and thus it was that the reign of one of the greatest of the Roman emperors and the first Christian Roman emperor was declared in York. Constantine reunited the Roman Empire, which had been fragmented for nearly a century, and built himself a new capital east of Rome, which he called Constantinople, now Istanbul. In AD 313, he issued an edict legitimizing Christianity throughout the empire, and in a show of gratitude for the support that York had given him, he approved the appointment of the first ever Bishop of Iboricum. To this day, the Bishop of Iboricum, now of course the Archbishop of York, signs himself Ebor. Constantine's mother, Helen, became a saint after discovering the remnants of the true cross in Jerusalem, and the church dedicated to St. Helen was raised above her husband Constantine Chlorus's burial place in York. That church is lost, but is recalled by St. Helen's Church in York's St. Helen's Square, opposite the mansion house, somewhere close to where the emperor is buried. York was finally abandoned by the Romans at the beginning of the 5th century, and as the decaying Roman walls and ramparts began to fall apart, they were patched up, first by the Saxons and then by the Vikings, who made York, or Jorvik as they called it, their capital. The Normans arrived and put up a new wall of earth and wood along the route of the Roman defences, and over the next 200 years this wall was rebuilt in stone and extended east and south across the Ouse to encompass the whole of the medieval city, with huge defensive gates called bars inserted into the walls. The walls to the west and north of York follow pretty much the course of the Roman walls of Iboricum, and if you walk along them at dusk, it is sometimes possible to hear the tramp of Roman legionaries or catch a fleeting glimpse of an emperor's purple cloak as the sun sets over this other Rome. Stop 2. Flamborough Head, Yorkshire East Riding. Flamborough Head, where the Yorkshire Wolds meet the sea, is one of the highest and most spectacular landmarks on the east coast of England. The headland lies at the southern end of a range of chalk sea cliffs, the only ones in the north of England. They reach a height of 400 feet and make up the largest breeding ground for birds on the English mainland, including orcs, gulls and puffins, as well as Britain's only mainland colony of gannets. To the north lies Filey Sands, where in 1911, 29-year-old Robert Weiss became the first passenger to die in a plane crash in England, when the wings fell off the Blackburn Mercury in which he was a passenger as it attempted to come out of a steep dive.
To the south lies breezy Bridlington Bay, while just back from the edge of the headland lies Flamborough Village, with its stately Norman church, wherein lies Sir Marmaduke Constable, commended by Henry VIII for bravery at the Battle of Flodden Field in 1513, and who died in agony after swallowing a toad while drinking a glass of water. The toad proceeded to eat its way out of Sir Marmaduke through his heart. This cautionary tale is graphically illustrated on his tomb by a sculpture showing the ribcage laid open to reveal a bulbous heart, said to be the inspiration for the classic English dish Toad in the Hole. Every Christmas, before his unfortunate end, Sir Marmaduke Constable would walk out onto the end of Flamborough Head and fire an arrow with a gold coin attached to it out to sea, calling for the King of Danes to come and collect it. The constables had been living in Flamborough for so long that they didn't know who to pay their rent to, and since the Danes had founded Flamborough, Sir Marmaduke thought it might as well be the Danish King. Between the village and the sea stands an intriguing octagonal tower made of chalk, believed to be the oldest complete lighthouse surviving in England, and the only one of its kind in the country. It was built in 1674 as part of a business venture by Sir John Clayton, the roundhead politician not the one better known as Tarzan, but was never used. The old lighthouse must have provided a splendid viewpoint over the Battle of Flamborough Head, fought off the headland on a moonlit night in September 1779 in front of crowds of anxious onlookers gathered along the coast from Scarborough to Bridlington. A small squadron of the fledgling American Continental Navy, donated by the French, and commanded by the father of the American Navy, Scots-born John Paul Jones, engaged two British warships who were escorting a convoy of the Baltic Merchant Fleet down the Yorkshire coast towards Hull. The battle was fierce and brutal, the sea foaming red with blood, with many dead and mutilated on both sides. The lead British ship, HMS Serapis, and Jones's flagship, Bon Homme Richard, named in honour of Jones's patron, Benjamin Franklin, who wrote a popular almanac under the name of Poor Richard, became locked together and caught fire. After a mighty explosion rocked the Bon Homme Richard, the watchers on the cliffs thought that Jones was lost, his ship dismasted and his flag shot away. The British commander, Captain Pearson, is said to have called on Jones to surrender, but Jones's reply, I have not yet begun to fight, has become part of US Navy folklore. In the end, it was Captain Pearson, who, to save further slaughter, and once he was satisfied that the convoy had reached safety in Scarborough Harbour, surrendered his sword to Jones on board the Bonhomme Richard. Once Jones realised his beloved flagship could not be saved, he boarded the Serapis with his crew and set sail for neutral Holland, where he handed over his prize and its crew to the French and took command of a new American ship, the Alliance. 
the Bonhomme Richard was left drifting out to sea off Flamborough Head to sink slowly beneath the waves two days later. Although the battle was small in terms of the number of ships involved, its significance as the first ever victory by the new American Navy was huge, for John Paul Jones's perceived success against the might of the Royal Navy, the most powerful navy in the world, helped to secure French support for the American Revolution, support that would prove decisive in the American colony's battle for independence from Britain. The lost Bonhomme Richard, flagship of the father of the American Navy, has achieved legendary status, and there have been numerous attempts to find the wreck in its resting place off Flamborough Head, one of them led by the American crime writer Clive Cussler, but as yet the sea off the Yorkshire coast has refused to give up its tantalising prize. Stop 3. Brompton, Yorkshire, North Riding When I am gone, you may find the seeds of thought in these scrolls. Typically modest words from Sir George Cayley, Squire of Brompton, the man who taught the world to fly. The brilliance of these scrolls, which lay down the four principles of aerodynamics that form the basis of modern aviation design, weight, lift, drag and thrust, was acknowledged by no less than the Wright brothers, who, thanks to Sir George Cayley's calculations, were able to achieve powered flight above the sands of Kitty Hawk in North Carolina, USA, on December 17, 1903. The state of North Carolina claims the title first in flight. Wrong. It was second. Yorkshire was first. Brompton, on the southern edge of the North York Moors near Scarborough, has many reasons to be proud. Among them, a wide, well-tended village green surrounded by noble trees, fine houses and a handsome medieval church of All Saints, where, on a golden-red autumn morning in 1802, the poet William Wordsworth married his childhood sweetheart, local girl Mary Hutchinson. She was a phantom of delight, he wrote the following year. A perfect woman, nobly planned, with something of angelic light. Amongst those strewing confetti in the glamorous young couple's path as they left the church was young George Cayley of next door Brompton Hall, who 50 years later would make the village of Brompton proud once more, as, as it says on the road sign on the way in, the birthplace of aviation. The exact birthplace of aviation, Sir George Cayley's workshop, is a modest stone outbuilding attached to the garden wall of Brompton Hall that sits right beside the main road. While rarely noticed by the hurrying crowds on their way to the candy floss and donkey rides in Scarborough, for anyone interested in aviation, 
a visit to the workshop of this remarkable man, now a museum of his life and work, is a must. Sir George Cayley, born 1773, was a classic inventor. He was interested in everything, and over the years his agile brain invented, amongst other things, artillery shells, the fire safety curtain for theatres, seat belts, a self-writing lifeboat, train buffers, an internal combustion engine powered by gunpowder, and allotments. He twice reinvented the wheel, designing the tension wheel with spokes, such as used on modern bicycles, for strength, and caterpillar tracks, as used today by tanks, for moving across difficult terrain. When the son of one of his tenants lost a hand, Sir George made him an artificial hand, strong and light enough for the young man to shake the hand of Prince Albert. His ultimate dream, to see man fly, was finally realised in 1853, when he was 80 years old. Sir George Cayley had been mulling over the theory of flight since he was a boy. His observations of seagulls gliding through the air on outstretched wings had convinced him that to design something with flapping wings was not the answer. Instead, what you needed was an appropriately curved fixed wing, which, allied to forward motion, would create lift. So he disappeared into his workshop and set about building a contraption based on these scientific principles. After a few false starts, he emerged blinking into the light, towing behind him a glider, a wooden monoplane equipped with kite-shaped cloth wings, an adjustable tailplane and fin, a boat-shaped cockpit for the pilot, and a flimsy tricycle undercarriage. With the assistance of staff, and a strong horse attached to the front of the machine by a rope, he wheeled the assembly across the road to the high side of Brompton Dale, and sat back to ponder his next problem. Who was going to fly the thing? Clearly he, Sir George, could not. He was 80 years old, and his wife, by all accounts a lady of firm character, would not allow it. Most fortuitously, just at that moment, his coachman, John Appleby, sauntered by and cast an indulgent eye over the machine. He had seen many such contraptions before emerge from his master's workshop, and never for a moment did he suspect what peril he was in. Ah, John, said Sir George, just the chap. And before he had time to object, Appleby found himself strapped into the tiny cockpit, perched on the edge of the abyss, in front of a throng of excited staff and villagers, who had gathered, eager to see history made, or perhaps more deliciously, disaster strike. At a sign from Sir George, the horse was urged into a gallop, and the glider scooted along the ground and then rose into the air, higher and higher and higher, soaring like a bird into the Yorkshire sky. For a moment, time seemed to stop.
imagine the cheers of the crowd below. Yorkshire folk cheering a Yorkshire man, flying a Yorkshire-built glider across a Yorkshire garden. Imagine, too, if you will, poor John Appleby's thoughts, as the ground dropped away and he floated up there in the wind, with just a flimsy bucket seat between him and the void, a sensation no man before him had ever experienced. When he got up that morning, no doubt with little on his mind except his breakfast, how could he have known that by the end of the day he would have joined the gods? as the first man ever to fly. Suddenly the spell was broken. The glider began to descend, and after flying for a distance in excess of 900 feet, John Appleby and the world's first flight came down with what Sir George's ten-year-old granddaughter Dora described as a smash. John Appleby extricated himself from the wreckage brushed himself down, rose to his full height, fixed his elated employer with an accusing eye, and spoke as only a Yorkshireman could at such a moment. Sir George, I wish to give notice. I was hard to drive, not to fly. And with that, he turned on his heels and limped away into immortality. Stop 4. Leeds Bridge, Yorkshire West Riding Leeds, Yorkshire's industrial powerhouse, has contributed much to the world and can boast many superlatives, firsts and inventions the first wool mill and the first fully automated steam-powered mill in the world, the Bean Ings Mill, built in 1792. The Armley Mill, by the end of the 18th century the largest mill in the world. The extraordinary temple works, modelled on an Egyptian temple, and the largest single room in the whole world when it opened in 1840. Tetley's Brewery, founded in Leeds in 1822, which by the 1980s had become the world's largest producer of cask ale. The finest and largest Victorian shopping arcades in the world, covered by the largest expanse of stained glass in Europe. In addition, Leeds is the birthplace of Portland Cement, Marks and Spencer, Next, originally Hepworth, and in many ways the railways, for the Middleton Railway, built to carry coal from the Middleton Colliery to the centre of Leeds, was established in 1758 by the first ever Railway Act of Parliament, and is still operating as the world's oldest continually working railway. 
But perhaps the most surprising and thrilling distinction of all is that Leeds is the birthplace of the film industry. Forget Hollywood or Bollywood or Pinewood. The Godfather, Citizen Kane, Casablanca, Psycho, Star Wars, Star Trek, E.T., Jaws, the Bond movies, Harry Potter, Jurassic Park, The Sound of Music. They owe it all to Leeds. Leeds was the first place on earth to appear in the movies. A Leeds family were the first movie stars, and Leeds Bridge, the first structure on earth ever to appear on moving film. The very first moving picture in the world was filmed on 14th of October 1888 in the garden of Oakwood Grange in Round Hay. A northern suburb of Leeds, the family home of Joseph Whitley, founder of the engineering firm of Whitley Partners. Starring in the movie were Joseph Whitley himself and his wife Sarah, their son-in-law Adolphe Le Prince, and Harriet Hartley, a family friend, who were all seen moving around on a sunlit patch of lawn beside a bay window of the house. The cameraman was Adolphe's father, Louis Augustin Le Prince. Who was married to the Whitley's daughter Elizabeth and worked for Whitley Partners? He was using his own single-lens camera built at his workshop in Woodhouse Lane, Leeds. Sometime later in October, from a second-floor window of Hicks the Ironmongers at Number 19 Bridge End, Louis Augustin Le Prince, using the same camera, filmed the moving traffic crossing Leeds Bridge, immortalising it as the first bridge ever seen in the movies. The smart Georgian building at the south end of Leeds Bridge, from where Le Prince filmed the bridge, is still there, marked by a blue plaque. And although the bridge was rebuilt in 1945, to walk across it is still to walk through movie history. Oakwood Grange in Round Hay, alas, was demolished in 1972 to make way for modern housing. And so the first place ever seen on moving film is lost—a tragedy of agonising proportions. For were it still to exist, movie enthusiasts from around the world would surely have visited Leeds in their droves to see it. It is at least possible to see Le Prince's actual historic camera and film footage at the National Media Museum in Bradford. As for the world's first movie stars, Sarah Whitley, the prince's mother-in-law, died ten days after the filming of the Roundhay Garden scene, while her husband Joseph died three years later in 1891. Both are buried in the graveyard of the Church of St John in Roundhay, beneath a gravestone decorated with tiles painted in arts and crafts style by Louis Augustin Le Prince himself.
Louis Augustin Le Prince was born in Metz in northeast France in 1841. He became an artist and then studied chemistry at Leipzig University, where he met John Whitley, who asked him to move to Leeds and join his family firm, Whitley Partners. Three years later, Le Prince married the boss's daughter, Elizabeth, herself a talented artist. Le Prince had long been interested in photography, having studied under the photography pioneer Louis Daguerre, whom he had met through his father, and he now began experimenting with the technology needed to capture moving pictures. The results of his endeavours was the world's first movie camera, a single lens camera using a single roll of film moving from spool to spool through a shutter and taking sequential images. It was this camera which he used to shoot the Roundhay garden scene and traffic crossing Leeds Bridge. Some seven years before rivals Thomas Edison and the Lumiere brothers claimed their own movie cameras as the first. Le Prince knew there was no point in publicising his movies until he had found some way of projecting them a problem that was eventually solved by replacing the Eastman paper film he was using with celluloid. So, in 1890, he arranged a public screening at the Morris Jumel Mansion in New York to demonstrate his work and to apply for a US patent. Before leaving for the States, Le Prince decided to make a quick trip to see his brother in Dijon in France. After the visit on the 16th of September 1890, his brother saw Le Prince onto the train to Paris at Dijon station and waved goodbye. Louis Augustin Le Prince, the man who invented the movies, was never seen again. He, his papers and his luggage vanished. The French police, Scotland Yard, the family and many others conducted extensive searches, but nothing. And since his body was never found, the prince's family had to wait seven years until he was declared dead before they could confirm his patents, by which time Thomas Edison had filed his own patent and been declared the inventor of the movie camera. So what happened to Louis-Augustin Le Prince? Did his rivals have anything to do with Le Prince's disappearance? Le Prince's widow Lizzie certainly thought so. There were millions of dollars at stake after all. She went to court along with their son Adolphe to file an action against Thomas Edison in a famous patents case called Equity 6928. And two years later, Adolphe was found dead at his summer cottage on Fire Island in New York State, his duck hunting gun by his side. There were other theories. Some say Le Prince had committed suicide. 
although this seems unlikely given that he was on the verge of seeing his life's work recognised. Laurie Snyder, the prince's great-great-granddaughter, thinks he was murdered by a thieving taxi driver and his body thrown into the Seine. And indeed, in 2003, a post-mortem photo of a man who looked a bit like Le Prince and whose body had been dragged out of the Seine was found in the archives of the Paris Gendarmerie. It truly is a mystery worthy of a Hitchcock thriller. But whatever happened, nothing can take away the fact that Leeds in Yorkshire has the honour of being the first ever film location. Well, that concludes our tour of Yorkshire. In the next episode, we visit the east of England taking in the world of Alfred Lord Tennyson in Lincolnshire, the most beautiful building in the world in Cambridgeshire, an Englishman's castle in Norfolk, an English artist's home in Suffolk, and a cathedral on the edge of the world in Essex. This has been an I Never Knew That production, brought to you by Christopher Wynne, with guest star Rupert Van Sittert. Find out more at ChristopherWynne'sINeverKnewThat.com and check out the I Never Knew That books online and at all good bookshops. My thanks to Rupert, to my executive producer Jeremy Conrad, and to you for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and join me again next time to discover more tales that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that.